Hello, and welcome to Dirty Bird Podcast, a podcast that takes birds seriously, but nothing else. I'm your host, John Janusik, and thanks for listening. In each episode of this podcast, we'll take a deep dive into the evolutionary history, taxonomy, and behavior of individual bird species, all while keeping the banter light, the energy bright, and the humor raunchy. Whether you're a longtime birder or just a fellow nature lover, I hope you'll find this podcast educational and enjoyable. In this episode, Big Peckers Part 2, The Peckering. Tim, Chris, and I continue our conversation about woodpeckers, this time focusing in on the semi-mythical ivory-billed woodpecker. Here's the show. <laughs> All right, here, let me go ahead and do that. Did anyone need to crack a beer or anything? Or? Good. All right. All right, let's go. I'm here with my co-host, Tim Estracci. Hey, hey. And Chris Hildreth. How's it going, guys? Tim is one of my longtime birding friends, and Chris, also one of my good friends. Chris, how about you introduce yourself? Hey, yeah, Chris Hildreth here. Uh, You know, have known these guys for many, many years now. Um, Not a bird enthusiast or specialist, I would say. I I am enthused by birds, but I'm not a specialist. Um, But uh, yeah, just happy to be here. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, of course, dude. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being here. So this is uh, part two of our Big Peckers. Uh, first one, we talked about the uh, pileated woodpecker. Um, I have to do a quick correction. I called the pileated woodpecker the Lord God bird last time. That's more reserved for the ivory build, which is the subject of our episode today. However, you'll see um, the pileated also called Lord God bird based on its size, too. If you recall, it's called a Lord God bird because when people saw it and saw how big it was, they would go, Lord God! That's a big bird. So, but the ivory bird is actually a little bit bigger. So, people probably said it more about holy the ivory shit. build. <laughs> holy <laughs> shit! The holy shit bird. <laughs> Let's. Uh, I don't know. How about Timmy? You want to talk about the ivory billed woodpecker? And it's a fascinating one because it's just for us. You know, we haven't gotten to see this bird, and it's just been a almost a thing of legend to us. Just hearing about it in the past, and it's. Uh, you know, the supposed sightings over the past uh, couple of decades, but, you know, it's it's a shame that we don't get to see a bird like this. Very, very interesting, very cool bird, um, and here's to hoping they're still out there. Yeah, and I'll talk about that, about the sightings and everything like that. I, I really do believe it is still out there. Um, uh, at least, you know, I strongly hope it is. And Chris, this will uh, definitely chime in on this, because, I mean... Kind of the ivory build is a story of extinction, rediscovery, and conservation. That's uh, why I was really excited to have you in on this on this one. Yeah, um, absolutely. You know, um, working for Jane Goodall, uh, as I do, one of her books is focused on uh, a lot of conservation efforts around the world. Um, and, you know, I'm just here to learn about this this bird and how it went extinct and how we can change our behavior in the future so it doesn't happen again. Chris, don't be so pessimistic. <laughs> I it might not believe. be. I, I want to believe. <laughs> we need to make some it's bumper sticker. <laughs> I believe. <laughs> so let me just go give some uh, facts about the ivory build here. So um, it's the third largest woodpecker in the world. 
It's behind the imperial woodpecker, which is a closely related species. Um, it split off about a million years ago. Um, the imperial is also very probably extinct um, in Mexico. The imperial is a woodpecker, has an amazing story, too. We'll have to do a whole episode on it. Um, basically, it kind of has the same demise as the ivory, where logging companies, uh, the logging kind of killed it, um, except... In Mexico, it was actively, um, the logging companies thought it was killing their best trees and actively got people to kill it, mm. put poison on trees to kill it. And then now, uh, researchers can't even go down to try to find it because the Sonola cartel controls the territory where it might exist and will literally kill people in the area. And then also uh, burns um, old growth forest there to make uh, opium and marijuana fields. So <laughs> literally the drug war is killing uh, killing species. But anyway, um, <laughs> the um, ivory-billed woodpecker, we got the uh, our book in front of us right there with Arthur Allen's uh, description and um, a picture. Um, and you can see the pileated and the ivory build side by side. They look pretty similar. And that's why you get all these sightings, um, because people will see the pileated, confuse it for the ivory. But there's a couple distinctive differences. So the ivory build's just a little bit bigger. And you can see the distinctive white markings on its wings down its back. Um, mm -hmm. That's very important. Well, both of them, the pileated and the ivory build, show white in flight. Um, but when they're perched on the tree, only the ivory build shows that white. Um, also, you'll see the ivory build has that black and red crest. It's very distinct, the um, markings on it. And uh, then it has that distinctive yellow eye. And then, of course, the ivory bill, too, where the pileated has a black bill. Mm -hmm. um, some young pileateds will have yellow bills, which also results in confusion. When people uh -huh. see young pileateds with a yellow bill, they'll think it's an ivory build. But usually the white markings on the wings are the distinctive field marker that people use. However, there have been pileateds found that have white on their wings, oh, a morph. Wow. Yeah, so just to make everything more confusing. Right. Uh, kind of some history on the ivory-billed woodpecker. So a lot of our descriptions of it come from the first kind of Europeans to uh, come into the United States and write about the birds. Um, Audubon and Wilson are big ones. Um, it was very important to Native Americans. It's always been kind of a rare bird um, because uh, we talked about how the pileated woodpecker needs, what, like 600 acres? Um, the ivory bill needs, I have it written in here somewhere, but it's like it's like 1,200 or something. It's, it's extensive. Um, so it was always kind of a rare bird. Native Americans uh, really valued its crest and its bill um, for ornamental purposes. They would fashion it onto uh, pipes. Um, they would uh, scalp it and use it for um, uh, decoration and different purposes. I'll talk about that a little bit more. I'll talk about Audubon's description of the ivory build, which is very, uh, very cool. So he first saw the ivory build woodpecker when he was coming down the Ohio River. He saw it right where the Ohio River met the Mississippi River, which is modern-day Cairo, Illinois. He, he noted that it's most abundant in the lower Carolinas, Georgia, Alabama, Louisiana, Mississippi. The ivory bill tends to like these low-laying kind of swampy forests. Um, it really was never seen in mountains. Sometimes I'll talk about that more. But it uh, specifically like cypress swamps, kind of these, it's described as these like moss-covered primeval forests. Um, uh, you know, you guys know cypress trees, mm -hmm. like they, you know, you feel like you're in freaking Jurassic Park mm -hmm. when you're in a cypress swamp. 
he has this great description where he's in a cypress swamp and there's snakes hissing, alligators bellowing, frogs croaking, and then the ivory build flying overhead, oh, drumming wow. on the trees. That's awesome. Uh, he, he describes the flight as undulating for the ivory build, but however, everyone else talks about the ivory build doing these straight, direct flights. We talked about how the pileated and other woodpeckers kind of have that up and down right. undulating flight. Ivory builds fly pretty straight, mm. um, which is another way to distinguish them. But he also talks about how they open their wings really fully and are very graceful. Sometimes they'll fly from one tree to the other in just one little swoop. And he describes a pate, pate, pate call. Um, nobody else <laughs> talks about that. They uh, talk yeah. about like a keat call. I'll actually go ahead and play its call right oh, now. Okay. It's described as a... Um, uh, a kid's toy trumpet. <laughs> oh, toot, toot. Toot, toot. And it's very distinctive versus like the calls of the pileated, like. Yeah, I mean that's a lot different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, the ivory-billed woodpecker is part of the family. Um, Campophilus. Uh, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. But anyway, um, there it's really the only one in its uh, family here in, in North America. There's a lot of them in South America. They're distinctive for doing this um, two drum. They kind of go like doo 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 when they drum on trees. Uh. And uh, I talked about last time about the evolutionary history of um, woodpeckers and how this family evolved from a separate common ancestor from the uh, pileated woodpecker, which also evolved large body size Mm. so it wasn't like one common ancestor that got big and put off pileated and ivory build an emperor it was it evolved independently twice which is kind of cool anyway to go back to audubon he talks about that the feathered head and bill are popular among native americans and then also shot by um white settlers too he talks about how they like to dig holes in live trees versus dead trees a lot um, and that they like to situate their holes underneath a branch to keep out rainwater. He describes that they have two broods in a summer, which is really uncommon, especially for a bird this size. And um, I think that's actually inaccurate. Um, We'll go more into that too. But he also describes how they would hang from a... Ivory builds seem to like um, fruit a lot more than other woodpeckers. And he describes them hanging from grapevines upside down like a titmouse eating them. This is also... This freaking hurts my heart, but he talks about, so Audubon and Wilson, we got Wilson pictured right here. He's another um, ornithologist that actually inspired um, uh, Audubon. But um, those early ornithologists, uh, they spent a lot of their time shooting and killing birds Hmm. um, to study them and draw them. But yeah, so this freaking hurts my heart, him talking about when he would shoot and and kill um, ivory builds. He said, when shot and wounded, they will climb up a tree and try to hide inside of it or, or on the top of it. He, he talked about because he would shoot them in the wing and they wouldn't be able to fly, but they would scurry back up the tree using only uh-huh. their feet. And uh, then he would also talk about if he, they were captured alive, wounded, then they would uh, peck you with their bills and their claws drawing blood. Um, he also talks about them uttering a mournful cry like a dying child. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. I also, uh, I'll tell another story with Wilson and his ivory billed woodpecker too. Audubon always called them Van Dykes. Um, whenever they would fly by, he goes, There's a Van Dyke. And this is based off of this painter, this Baroque painter, Anthony Van Dyke, 
he's this Flemish painter and he would kind of use bold colorings. Um, uh, if you look him up online, you'll recognize some of his paintings, but he, uh, it, it goes back to the distinctive way that the crest, the black and the red are like very distinctly separated. Mm -hmm. And so he thought it looked almost like a painter. Van Dyck had painted their crest. So that's why he would call them that. Unlike the pileated, where both the male and female have the red crest, the ivory build, the female has a black crest. Only the male has the red crest with the ivory build. So that's Audubon with the ivory build, which is kind of cool. And another ornithologist, uh, T. Gilbert Pearson, that wrote the section in this uh, National Geographic book from, is this the 30s, John? Mm-hmm. And to the point that you just made, uh, there's a small excerpt in here that reads in recent years this magnific magnificent bird has been shot as a curiosity and this short-sighted policy has brought the species to the verge of extinction so just the you definitely have to understand to some point the need to study birds and be able to examine them up close but the, that is a little tough to imagine is that being one of the things leading to their possible extinction is just shot out of curiosity. Yeah, and certainly don't justify the means. Yes, yeah. definitely. I know, I know, and I know. And you think like, if they if they didn't kill that one, like, do you think it exactly. maybe the speed? Yeah, I know. You have to have to ask that. Uh, I'll, I'll go into a little just general description of the ivory-billed woodpecker here. So, it's called um, Campophilus uh, principalis. I probably pronounced it some. Um, uh, name wrong earlier, but Campophilus, that's that group with the double doo-doo uh, drumming, and they're the ones where there's a lot of them in South America, just the ivory built in North America. Um, Campophilus is Greek for caterpillar-loving or grub-loving, um, and then Principalis is Latin for, like, chief. Um, anyway, they're, the black on their body is described as a glossy blue-black, like a shimmering, almost like a crow's body. They kind of have a long, slender body, these wide wings. Um, they, I talked about how they have that huge um, territory size. And um, they would actually, uh, their body's kind of designed for flying pretty long distances, um, more so than, uh, than the pileated or other woodpeckers. They're distributed pretty much in the southeast, uh, nowhere else, in low-lying areas. Um, there's also a sub uh, subspecies. It's debated whether it's the same species in Cuba that went extinct in the 1980s. <laughs> there's still people looking for them in Cuba, but they haven't been seen since the 1980s. I, I think that they made it over there um, to Cuba. Let's see. I was doing some research on it, and... So there was a there was a time when I mean we were talking about earlier about sea levels fluctuating. Okay, so my theory is that the ivory build got over to Cuba during the late Upper Pleistocene. Um, Chris, when when was that? Do you mind giving us a? Uh, yeah, about five point three million years ago to two point five million years ago. Oh no, sorry, you're looking at um. Oh, the Pleistocene. Pleistocene. Sorry, yeah. uh, it was one hundred twenty thousand to twenty five thousand years ago. Uh, the sea levels were 120 meters lower, and so I think that the ivory bill probably got over then. Um, I talked about how the emperor um, woodpecker is split off about a million years ago from it. Um, so I expect kind of the common ancestor was, you know, running around and uh, got isolated in different areas, split off to the emperor, split off to the ivory build, and then 
it made its way um, over to Cuba uh, when sea levels were low, probably between 120,000 and 25,000 years ago. The one in Cuba likes living in pine forests of the northeast um, in Cuba. Uh, like I said, the last confirmed sighting was 1986 for it in Cuba. And the Cuban one's a little bit different. It's a little smaller. It has white markings a little farther up the neck. But um, then in the, um, the one in the Americas, it's a, a pretty big, big bird, um, larger than the pileated, um, uh, larger than a crow. And the distinctive uh, things about it are that white on the wings. It's kind of Kent tin horn call. It's also described as like a clair. If you just use the mouthpiece of a clarinet, that also is described as the call. It has that characteristic double knock, that pale bill. And uh, also, its bill is a little different. It um, Versus the pileated woodpecker is described as having an ice pick bill to mm. just hammer into trees. The um, ivory-billed woodpecker kind of has a flat bill like a wood chisel. Mm. Tim, you're, you're kind of an amateur carpenter over there, so you know what a wood <laughs> chisel is. I do. So what's a wood chisel used for? Uh, it's got a lot of purposes, but... Anything that you're trying to carve into wood, uh, that's your your pretty versatile tool there. Any approach you want to take. So I can I can definitely see in this picture here as well that their their beak looks more like it's just designed for you know, make, making any sort of hole that you wish in that wood. Yeah. So um, what the uh, ivory build? Uh, so you know evolutionarily like birds have to kind of exploit different areas so whereas the pileated would hammer directly into it and and the pileated and the ivory builds habitats overlapped a lot whereas the pileated would hammer directly into a tree the ivory builds um exploitation strategy was to kind of use its um flat sides of its bill to strip bark off of trees mm. and eat bugs directly off of the strip bark there mm. um or right underneath the bark seems more efficient yeah it honestly does um uh, but you know, you need, once you strip the bark off a tree, like you're done with that tree. Um, so it needs a huge habitat. Um, so I found, uh, I think I said 1200 acres earlier. Uh, I actually have written down here 6,400 acres per pair of ivory bill. Um, yeah, well, one of the, st I'll talk more about, uh, one of the studies done on ivory, one of the only we, uh, studies on ivory builds, but, um, uh, yeah, it found 6,400 acres per pair, and then it found um, about a one ivory build per 36 pileateds ratio. So, yeah, they wow. need extensive territory, and that's why they were so streamlined yeah. and able to fly huge distances. Because they strip bark off, they do a lot more lateral strikes. Um, and actually, the ivory-billed woodpecker was able to angle... We talked about zygodactylic and anisodactyly mm -hmm. in the last episode. The... Um, Ivory-billed woodpecker is, was actually able to angle all four of its toes forward because it would do a lot of lateral strikes on a tree. Hmm. So it had a lot of versatile with its toes so that it could do a lot of different angled strikes to hammer that bark off. As far as its historic range, we think it went from East Texas to North Carolina as far as like its um, East to West range, um, and then North to South from Southern Illinois down to Florida, Cuba, However, we have found um, bones in West Virginia, Ohio, Kentucky, and like Indian middens um, uh, cooking um, cooking mounds. So mm. we think that Perhaps they were local traded. there. 
Yeah. However, yes, Chris, you're totally right. It was widely traded. The bills we found them in Michigan in and in, in stuff. It was wow. a highly di- like chiefs would have it and be buried with them. So we've we've found them in burial sites like uh, and in places where they obviously never never lived, but they were traded for. Audubon said that it could be found in Maryland sometimes. Um, who knows if that's actually true, but. Uh, but yeah, I mean, um, so it had a pretty extensive range. However, it was always rare. As far as the food it liked to eat, um, as far as Audubon and Wilson, when they would kill them and cut them open and dissect them, um, over half its stomach contents were usually beetle larvae, particularly long-horned beetles. Um, but it also ate nuts and fruits. I talked about how it would eat grapes and hang there like a titmouse. However, when it um, would feed its young, um, it, it is one of the few birds that feeds its young live uh, bugs. So it, it would find small little grubs that were alive and bring them live to its young to feed them. Wow. So you can see how difficult it was for this bird, you know, like it needed mm-hmm. a lot of habitat. So um, they mated for life just like the pileated. They worked together to excavate just like the pileated. We think it may have preferred living in partially dead uh, or even living trees. It seemed to avoid rotting or dead trees. And it shaped the same kind of hole as pileated, which is one of the reasons why it makes it so difficult to, you know, tell whether they're in an area and differentiate them. It had pretty much some of the same behavior as pileated. It laid eggs in April to May, um, usually about three white eggs, um, about 20-day incubation from what we can think. Um, the male would uh, incubate overnight, and then they would switch off. Pretty, pretty much very similar to the pileated. Mm-hmm. Both parents would feed the hatchlings. Um, the young would fly seven to eight weeks after hatching, and then parents would continue feeding them for another two months after they had hatched. They would kind of tag along with their parents and keep getting fed. There's a really cool... Um, uh, Cuban ivory built that they found that had, um, so woodpeckers in general, um, they keep growing their bills, kind of like how we keep growing our nails and our hair because they're constantly hammering them mm-hmm. down. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a, a Cuban ivory built woodpecker that was found where it was growing too much or something and its bill literally turned, like, oh. grow almost like in a curve and was almost growing up into its head. However, it was only its upper bill doing that, so it could still open its mouth, and its parents would just continue feeding it and keeping it alive. And then it finally died after like about a year of this, its parents feeding it, and then, but it couldn't peck, obviously, or care for itself, so, but yeah, it's it's in a museum in Cuba, I think. It's a really cool picture if you want to Google it. Um, Ivory builds seem to be really non-territorial. They always were shy birds um, and hard to find. Excuse me. Bless you, Chris. Thank you. Sorry about that. <laughs> You're fine. Um, they were always non-territorial, though, because um, you could see them. Whereas pileateds, you usually only see the two mating pairs together. Maybe they're juveniles with them, but they're not social birds. Ivory builds, you would see like four to five of them all together hanging out. And then you would see like pileateds together with them, too, because they kind of had different feeding strategies. Mm-hmm. So you didn't really compete. And Ivory Build, it's speculated that they lived up to 30 years, wow. which is nuts. Yeah, is. that's so that's one of the things. They had this really wide range. So they're one of these, like, slow reproducing species. Like, they have a very controlled... So, like, um, they weren't able to reproduce really fast. So that's why, you know, uh, logging and things really hurt them because they have this huge territory and so they don't want to reproduce too fast and have a bunch of competition 
um, when, you know, a few are killed, like, it really makes a big impact. Uh, they're also called disaster birds um, because I talked about how they can fly long distances. Um, they really like to exploit areas where there have been floods, fires, tornadoes mm. that have just killed off a lot of trees because they really like recently dead trees, um, like very recently dead or even still like a little bit alive and on the dying side. If an area was flooded, that was like they would fly and explore and find it and exploit it and then go fly somewhere else. So really with, you know, uh, the white man coming and stuff and building dams and controlling the ecosystem, there's no more floods, there's no more fires. Right. Like, so there's not a lot for um, the ivory bill to exploit. So uh, I was just talking a ton about um, what we know about uh, ivory builds. But the thing is, is what we know about ivory builds is almost all based on this dude named Jim Tanner. So Jim Tanner was this ornithologist, and between the years of 1937 and 1939, he pretty much dedicated himself to studying the ivory-billed woodpecker. The story of the ivory-billed woodpecker is one of extinction and rediscovery. People kept thinking it was dead and then rediscovering it, thinking it was dead, rediscovering it. There's kind of three big waves of impact to the ivory build. Mm. Um, since it lived in the southeastern United States, this obviously was one of the first areas colonized by, by uh, Europeans, extensively logged. There's almost no virgin forest left. You know, it was mostly agricultural down here. However, post-Civil War, a lot more industry got brought in. The logging industry went crazy. And so post-Civil War, a lot of areas were logged. That's like the first hit to the ivory build. Second hit came in World War One. We were still making a lot of wooden ships and stuff like that, and that's when the second hit came. And then the third hit came in World War II, and we think this is maybe the nail in the coffin for the ivory build because mm -hmm. some of the only areas that were left were exploited during World War II and destroyed. Jim Tanner, um, he's the one that we – he studied the ivory builds, and so almost everything we know is based off of Jim Tanner's studies. However, Jim Tanner was only studying 22 ivory builds. That's all that were left in the area that he was studying. He was um, looking at the uh, Singer tract. Are you guys familiar with the Singer sewing machine? Yeah, yeah. 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 So that's what it was. It was owned. It was uh, a place in uh, northeastern Louisiana, I think. And it was um, uh, virgin, cypress, swamp, perfect for uh, ivory builds. And so he was studying them there, but there were only 22 individuals left there. Um, Arthur Allen, our guy that writes in, in the book we got mm -hmm. in front of us there, he also went. And um, some of the only recordings and videos we have of ivory-billed woodpeckers come from that I was area. wondering how you got that recording. Yep. You want to crack your beer? Yeah, I can <laughs> edit this out or not edit it. <laughs> Who fucking cares? <laughs> Shit fart. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, but um, un uh, so the Singer Tract is um, now the uh, uh, Tensas River um, National Wildlife Reserve. Um, that's what it is now. But unfortunately, during World War II, it was sold and logged. Ugh. So all the all the remaining ones were killed there. Um, and that uh, in the Singer Tract is actually the last confirmed sighting uh, of the ivory bill in 1944. Oh, wow. We'll talk about, however, the 2005 confirmed sighting. But uh, I don't know. Thoughts, you guys? Just crazy to think about such a bird, you know, being a, a victim of habitat destruction like that. But it's it's really cool to hear everything that we know about it, and it's nice to get the perspective of some 
some ornithologists and just hear their original thoughts since there haven't been sightings in the in the past mm. few years. But what do you think, Chris? Yeah, no, I think it's uh, you know interesting to see this record of of history and you know learning from the past about this this species. You know, I have this timeline of birds right in front of me, and uh, at the very end it has extinction of the moas, extinction of the dodo. You know. So it just makes you wonder how many other species will go. You know, we're set to lose half of the yeah population on Earth by of spe of animal species at least by 2040. I think I saw 2050. So yep, I know. And it's um, Audubon has a great uh, and I think uh, Cornell Lab too has this great list of bird species that have declined. And God, I saw that the um, evening grosbeak has declined by 90 percent in like the past five years. Mm -hmm. It's just it's terrible. Um, and I mean, no one really cares. And Trump recently just cut back on a lot of, uh, um, uh, migratory bird protections and all kinds of stuff. It's, um, it's, it's terrible. It really is. Um, but so people care about your birds because when you protect the birds, you protect a lot of other stuff too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> all right. Well, let's keep this uh, depressing train rolling. Um, <laughs> So, I don't know, what do you guys want to talk about? Uh, do you want to talk about how it went extinct, or do you want me to tell my story about Alexander Wilson and the ivory build? Timmy, uh, can you describe the picture of Alexander Wilson you have he's, in front of he's you? He's quite a fellow here in this picture. He's uh, just he's got a mullet or something. looking <laughs> quite inquisitive about ornithology and holding his outdated-looking rifle. What I guess he was... What was his time? Was he... He was uh early 1800s. Yeah, yeah, he was a little bit. Yeah, so, um, he's an interesting character. He uh, came from Scotland to be a teacher in America, but uh, then um, decided he liked drawing a lot more, and finally got funded and was able to kind of be able to journey around America drawing birds. Um, and he's one of the ones that inspired Audubon because he was trying to. Uh, sell Audubon some of his paintings, and then Audubon's I think servant was like. Uh, Audubon, you're way better than this guy. So then uh -huh. Audubon was like, "All right, I'm gonna do it then." <laughs> and uh, yeah, but uh, I'll tell I'll tell a story about um, Wilson. So Wilson has some species named after him. He has a warbler named after him, a petrel. He was, uh, like I said, from Scotland, early painter, ornithologist. But there's a story about him. He was out, out um, uh, in let's see, he was in Wilmington, North Carolina, in the woods outside of it. And shooting some ivory builds, and he kills two. Naturally. Yeah, and then the third one he shoots, and he wounded it. It was a male, um, wounded it in the wing. And like I said, Audubon said it sounds like a screaming child when it was wounded. So it's shrieking um, when it falls, and he's excited because Wilson actually liked capturing birds live when he could, because he thought it was better for his painting to see them when they were alive while he painted them. So he takes it and he puts it in his jacket and brings it uh, back to a hotel in Wilmington. And it's screaming and shrieking and crying. And he, when he's checking into the hotel, he asks for a room for him and my baby. And then he uh -oh. reveals the shrieking, wounded, bleeding ivory build in his coat. And everyone chortles in laughter at his joke. Oh, God. <laughs> I so anyway, out. I know, I know. But anyway, 
on yeah the, uh, Timmy does he look like a serial killer <laughs> I would say so <laughs> it's the bangs um so he <laughs> he brings the bird up to his room and locks it in his room uh while I don't know he goes out to go kill some people and <laughs> anyway he comes back and his room is destroyed he talks that he says that um the framing surrounding one of the windows is just like totally chipped away and destroyed the plat there's a huge hole of plaster in the wall because the woodpecker's just been going crazy in the room so he's like hmm I think that the bird's hungry. So he goes out in Wilmington and tries to find some grubs for it. Well, you're not going to fucking find grubs in Wilmington. So then he comes back to the hotel, and it fucking destroyed this expensive mahogany table that was in the the, um, room. And then it starts attacking him. And so woodpeckers... um, we talked about their biology in the last episode, but I didn't talk about their claws at all. Like, they have very, very strong, almost talons of claws to grab onto those trees. And Wilson talks about how it both pecked him and clawed at him, drawing blood and kind of injuring him pretty severely. And... Um, <laughs> So he drew it. He did some actually very good drawings of the ivory build based off of that specimen, I guess you would say. But yeah, it lived for three days. It refused to eat even when he did finally find it some grubs because I'm sure it was freaked out. And then it died. Like, (laughs) God. Yeah, for the sake of what, you know, a a painting. Yeah, I know. I know. But hell, the 1800s, if you got a... Spirit, you can do whatever you want. Exactly. <laughs> yep. Yep. This guy doesn't sound too bright, but he was a orthologist. I know. Yeah. Alexander Wilson was also, I. he has a little, kind of a, I mean, I'm sure everyone was then, but kind of a racist. He has this little note about Negroes killing ivory builds. I'm like, dude, come on. Like, yeah. you're shooting them too. Yeah. Like, yeah. God. Stuffing um, them babies in your jacket. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, freaking Jack the Ripper of Wilmington. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, how about we talk about how it went extinct, and then uh, uh, I'll talk about how it might not actually be extinct. Oh, uh, Titmouse just flew over. Or Chickadee, I guess. But anyway. Um, we must explain that we're outside, because we didn't do that Yes, on that's true. We didn't explain. We are sitting on the banks of the Sand Run Lake, in Canaan Valley, on the edges of Dolly Sod and Canaan National Wildlife Reserve, enjoying the snow-covered fields and the actually pretty mild weather. Mm-hmm. My yeah, toes are a little cold, but I like that. Her. All things considered, nice day though. Oh yeah, beautiful. Uh, Great to be out here. Yeah, yeah. pleasure to have. Pleasure. Pleasure is all mine. <laughs> all right, so let's talk about how it likely went extinct. So, I Wilson. talked about how <laughs> fucking Wilson, <laughs> fucking serial killer. Found every last yeah. one. <laughs> if, if anyone actually listens to this, we'll probably get some <laughs> fucking mail about... Wilson was a revolutionary. <laughs> <laughs> Don't use slander. <laughs> <laughs> fucking Wilson Jr. Jr. or something. Wilson the fourth. Libel. Yeah. <laughs> ah, fuck, he's probably... All his relatives are probably serial killers, too. Yeah. We're just slandering. <laughs> Same as ornithologists. If we want to find the last ivory, 
the Wilson descendants are yeah. a good place to start. They yeah. might have plot of the next national. <laughs> my, my killing, yeah, my bloodlust is tingling. <laughs> Must kill. <laughs> Yeah, it's like bringing, uh, what is that movie where they bring Hannibal Lecter in to uh, try yeah. to, oh, uh, um, Silence of the Lambs, yeah, it's like, yeah, bringing Wilson's descendant strapped down to a table. Nice. <laughs> 50 oh, yards that way. Oh my god. Um, anyway. No disrespect. <laughs> Whatever, if he was racist and killing Ivory Belge, I'm fine with that. Anyway. How it likely went extinct. So we said it was always a rare bird, you know, had kind of large habitat, uh, restrictive habitat. Um, it was hunted a lot by natives, as I said, because um, they liked the ornamentation of it. Um, of course, um, I'll talk about the myths and legends um, that the Native Americans had about it. Of course, they respected it. Um, Europeans, of course, liked to use it for ornamentation, too. It was also, it and the pileated were heavily used for food, too. I mean, a bird that big, you're like... Mm, that looks like a good freaking drumstick, you know? Anyway, I talked about the three phases, um, post-Civil War, World War One, World War II. Um, uh, collectors and hunters, especially as it started to get rare and rare, um, people were killing it more and more as it got rare and rare because they're like, oh, that's a rare bird. Let me kill it so I can stuff it and show it in my study, you know? Um, to piggyback on that, John, this kind of sums up the... Sort of what led up to the extinction, it sounds like, or possible extinction. The reduction in abundance in this species is due most probably to persecution by man, for the species has been shot relentlessly without particular cause, except curiosity and, is, and a desire for the feathers or beaks. Yep. Yeah. It's awful. It's not much like <sighs> it's the same creatures. So it's been thought to be extinct several times and then rediscovered. I talked about this singer tract in Louisiana where it was kind of rediscovered. Mm -hmm. um, also, it was thought to be extinct in Florida. But then in 1924, Arthur Augustus Allen, who I think just read that quote that you, you did, he found two uh, mating pairs in a tree in Florida. And uh, <laughs> however, when he talked about his findings, a pair of local taxidermists shot it and killed them. <laughs> God. Oh, it's awful. <laughs> That's the yeah. irony died. I know. I know. Like, I wish they had just... Uh, and honestly, like, I think even if someone saw it now, they'd probably want to be quiet about it. But yeah, the 1880s is when it really began uh, being noted from disappearing from Carolina and other states. Uh, it's kind of last stand was thought around uh, the Gulf of Mexico, where there's a lot of swampy land, hard to get to, hard to log, and everything like that. Of course, uh, you know, people still get there. Interestingly, I was reading about this, um, or actually, I'll talk about this now. Um, so in 2004, um, two kayakers, um, one of them an ornithologist named Gene Sparling, and his friend were uh, kayaking along the um, Bayou Devu and the Catch River National Wildlife Refuge, and they saw a ivory-billed woodpecker. Um, swoop from a tree and do its uh, kind of characteristic, I talked about Audubon saying this, it's characteristic where it would just kind of swoop from one tree to another. Um, not doing that undulated flight, kind of a straight um, flight. And uh, I listened to an interview with Gene Sparling, and he says he nearly flipped his kayak and started screaming and then scared the ivory build away because <laughs> they were just so freaking excited. So this was this is kind of an unofficial confirmed sighting. Uh, a lot of people dispute it. Cornell Lab of Ornithology confirms it. How do they go about doing that, would you say? If what? It's just 
It's just so, an eyewitness. Yeah, so because it was two, uh, he was an ornithologist, and I believe his friend was too. So when you have two, I mean, there have been a lot of sightings, but it's always been one person. There's something called the curse of the ivory build, where people are out, see an ivory build, try to take a picture, and their camera fails, or of they course. had forgotten their camera, or something like Same that. Same thing with Bigfoot. Dude, dude, that comparison is made a lot. Yeah, and um, uh, I think it's Gene talks about in an interview about how people treat him like he's a Bigfoot like cider, you know? Because he'll say, "I saw an everybody," and like, "Oh yeah, right," you know? Like treat him like he's crazy or like making it up. But I think he sounds pretty convincing, and I, I think I believe his story. So the fact that there were two of them, two credible witnesses, made uh, convinced Cornell Lab of ornithology. Yeah, he talks about how he um, went in to uh, meet the president of Cornell to report his finding, and he said it was like a um, an interrogation. Uh, like the guy, uh, when he sits down, the president clicks on a recorder and just like picks his story apart and like asks him the same question multiple ways like a police officer yeah, would, you know? Yeah. And uh, they ended up believing him, although... Um, other people disbelieve, which I'll I'll talk about. They uh they said they saw it there. Um, they were you know canoeing along some cypress um swamps. So the area that they were in, um, the Cache River. It's um, uh, it's in Arkansas. There's the White River and the Cache River, and it's um, it's an area of it's about one mile wide. For how long does it go on? I think it goes on for about 20, 30 miles of this one mile wide along the river place that hasn't been logged for uh, like 80 years or something so it got logged once but it was hard to log so they only took some trees and this was like a hundred plus years ago then they came back and logged it again and this time they took almost everything but some places they didn't necessarily touch so it's thought that maybe the ivory builds were able to like hang out in those areas that weren't that you know, weren't hit totally, totally stripped the second time, you know? And, uh, anyway, um, but it's, it's a very small area. Um, and it actually, after he saw it, it got closed off because they were worried about all these people rushing in. And the thing is, is people did rush in. Mm -hmm. Um, the town of Brinkley, Arkansas, actually this little, you know, nothing town kind of reframed itself as a destination for the ivory build woodpecker. This hairdresser there started giving hair, hair woodpecker haircuts wow. where she would dye them black and red, just like the crest and cut it in like a mohawk. Yeah. You know, the restaurant started having like ivory build sandwiches. Oh. I mean, not, not made out of ivory build, but just, you know, that named that. And like, they saw a bump in tourism because of bird watchers are coming yeah, to try yeah. to see Worked it. With what you got. Yeah. Hunters were taking people out on tours, you know, um, after that sighting, Cornell Lab, they put a lot of money into going out and systematically searching the area for ivory build. I don't know if he worked for um, Cornell Lab, but this guy, what's his name? David Lanoue. So he is this big bird watcher guy, and he put up all these wildlife cameras out there. Very dedicated guy. He has a great blog if um, you want to check it out. But um, he was able to get some film of a, um, a, a an audio. I don't think he got the audio. He got the film. The audio was done by Cornell Lab, and it has a distinctive double tap. And then also the call. Let me just play it again. The call. So that's kind of a distinctive, distinctive call. Um, and uh, if you, I probably should have pulled it up, but oh well. The, they got audio of it, and it's 
far away, so the pitch is a little different. So, like, people still dispute that, but anyway. But he got video of, and you can't really see it. It's, like, perched on a tree, and then it flies. But you can see the white markings, and you can see it fly. It's really grainy and jumpy. But uh, Cornell Lab of Ornithology confirms David Lanou's finding. However, David Sibley... Sibley writes Sibley's, uh, you know, guide to North American birds. Mm -hmm. He's a famous, like, revered ornithologist, and he really disputed this finding of the ivory-billed woodpecker, like, Mm -hmm. vehemently went against it. However, a lot of studies that I um, looked at were coming against him, and in fact, the um, Fish and Wildlife Service disputes him, and they they think that the ivory-billed is still there, so much so that they published um, a, a report, Recovery Plans for Ivory-Billed Woodpecker, which is a fucking, like, 100-plus page document describing everything you would ever want to know. Mm. It is great. I awesome. tried to read it all, <laughs> but it was too much. It was so much. Um, 100-page government document. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but so the I'm thing reading. is, Cornell Lab of Ornithology, after, you know, this when this sighting just like in 2004, it got kind of published in 2005, mm-hmm. spurred people to go out and look for it. So Cornell Lab was funding all this stuff, and they were doing it in all the states where um, it had typically been... Um, you know, previously reported. Yeah. Um, they didn't do Virginia, I saw, which I found surprising because Thomas Jefferson in um, his book um, Notes on the State of Virginia talks about the ivory-billed woodpecker. He calls it the white-billed woodpecker. But mm-hmm. So it may have even extended to Virginia, too, and I believe that because, I mean, we're from Yorktown, Virginia, and there's definitely some kind of swampy oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 absolutely. areas that seem like they would be good for and it. And we have the, uh, the swamp at the Beaver Creek. End. Or swamp at the southern end dismal. of the state. Dismal? Yeah, yeah. dismal yep. swamp, yeah. Yeah, and um, do you guys know Sufjan Stevens? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it actually inspired him, this whole uh, event inspired him to write a song called The Lord God Bird, which <laughs> is actually a really good song. Anyway, um, so they were searching, other than David Lanouf getting that video and then the Cornell Lab Ornithology getting some audio, no one ever saw. There were like a couple reports, but nothing confirmed of sightings. And they did, you know, they went to Florida, Mississippi, everywhere searching for it. Um, it was like, um, so David Lanou, I think I have it written somewhere. He says he put, you know, thousands and thousands of hours in just to get that little video. So, I mean, it was a lot of work. So, I mean, the worry. So, I, I really think this 2004, 2005 sighting is real. I'm just worried that maybe they caught it on the cusp of extinction mm. because no one was really able to find it after that. And, yeah. Um, could be the next ones. Yeah, I know. Now. That's the hope. <laughs> that's the hope. So I was looking about um, about what's been going on in that area. So around 2010, they stopped doing the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, stopped funding stuff. Uh, there are definitely people out there still searching. Yeah. David Lanou on his blog is still searching. But they stopped kind of funding it after that because, I mean, you know, they had tried for five years and all these different states, all these different habitats, and, and hadn't been able to find it. Mm. In 2009, I saw a tornado hit White River National Wildlife Refuge, and there's a lot of devastation. And at first I was like, oh, fuck, that's terrible. Like, And then I was like, wait a second, these are disaster birds. Yeah. <laughs> like, if there are any, this they're tornado, they're sure probably they like, go. fuck yeah, <laughs> get me some grubs. <laughs> get that grub. And uh, another thing I want to point out is um, Michael Collins. Um, 
Uh, he's a guy who kayaked the Pearl River in Mississippi, and it's right on the Mississippi-Louisiana border. Um, he kayaked it in 2006 and 2008 and filmed two videos of an ivory build. Mm. And the Fish and Wildlife Service uh, confirms that. So wow. they, they uh, well, at least they support him on that. Hmm. Um, and that was 06 and 08? Yep. Wow. But he says he had to go out there for 1,500 hours Jeez. to get Ooh. those. Yeah. <laughs> So this is not something, yeah, this is not something you go out for a day and yeah. find it, you know. Oh, um, I want to note that, what's his name, uh, Tanner, on his, I talked about how he was studying those 22 individuals on the Singer tract. Um, he found that the birds preferred sweet gum and nuttle oak trees, and in the Fish and Wildlife Good Service, taste. yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, they like to nest in um, live sweet gum, is what he saw. They just chisel into the live tree. I don't know if that's because they are like, uh, all right, it's not going to fall down because it's alive or something, you know? Um, but uh, so the Fish and Wildlife Service and their report, which is a, I mean, you got to read it if you're interested in the ivory build. But um, uh, they, you know, advocate, you know, keeping sweet gums alive and stuff like that. However, they're also really pessimistic because they're like, you know, it's such a low population density. Like, we've tried so hard to find it, and we can't really only these isolated maybe findings. And uh, so even if it is out there, like, it's so hard to keep alive, it's probably not even worth it. We should focus on other say, species. We should be able to care for it in an enclosure yeah. because it's so specialized. And Yeah, that's, yeah. Probably can't. Yeah. Yep. So, like, I mean, I guess they're ta- I mean, I'm, like, fucking protected, but they're kind of taking the wider view on other yeah. species, and they're like, look, it's not worth our time. We have so much other stuff to focus on. Right. So, it's unfortunate. Yeah, I don't know. Do you guys have anything to say about about what I just went over there? Just hope we get to see one. Yeah, I mean, it's sad, unfortunate. Yeah. People's, you know, kind of greed took over there in the past, it seems, and now there's this flourish of interest and just a bit too late you know if only people yep. had this type of recognition for the sanctity of nature earlier earlier yeah i totally agree man jesus it's getting cold out here the wind's blowing listeners should we wrap up any... with a call from the request line <laughs> yes yeah let's uh yeah, let's get so that. yeah i'll uh let's call in evan and then i'll talk a little bit about some uh uh, Native Americans and their uh, relationship with the ivory-billed woodpecker. Let the record show, Evan's not a friend anymore. Like, oh. <laughs> oh. oh, wow. That's right. Well, maybe he'll call well, in. Then. <laughs> All right, well. Oh, well. Let the record show. Evan <laughs> Beach <tried> declined <laughs> being a guest in the show. He's probably... All right, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> John, any thoughts? <laughs> any thoughts? <laughs> Halfway through the the dial ring thing, I realized I did this Friday, and he's probably working. But oh shit, that's true. We're working true. too. All right, so let me talk about the relationship with Native Americans. I talked about how they, you know, obviously hunted it. They tra- you traded it was highly valued. It appears actually that pileated woodpeckers were also traded and used, but they were kind of like an inferior, like. It was almost like they wanted that ivory build, but like if mm. they had to settle for something on their pipe, it would be all you right. I'll put it in. Yeah. Year, you got <laughs> one? <laughs> um, but yeah, so um, the um, bill crest was especially um, important for ornamentation. Um, the fire-colored cap was associated with sun, life, that kind of red. And the Creek Seminole and the Cherokee tribes um, associated the red scalps with warfare. So they would either 
I don't know, decorate clothing or um, weapons with it if they were planning on using it for warfare. There's a lot of discussion about um, uh, the way that the bill was used in pipes, whether it was a war pipe or a peace pipe. Um, and uh, sometimes the crest would be on top of the bill representing a wartime or the bill would be on top of the red crest. Uh, representing peace that the bill was kind of putting the crest down yeah it was really cool um also um there's thoughts that um the ivory billed woodpecker was actually allowed to um and woodpeckers in general population was helped a lot by native americans because obviously they didn't have uh iron uh tools you know metal tools so one of their main ways of clearing forest for agriculture or for homes was to either burn it or girdle trees where they cut along it to kind of kill the tree and of course if you're a woodpecker you fucking love that you know like a tree getting killed off so it's thought that native americans help their populations that way there have been shell gorgets so a gorget chris do you know what a gorget is Uh, a suit uh it's kind of part it's part of your chest yeah yeah so it's like you know when you watch game of thrones or some shit like that they have like kind of a neck it's Mm. almost like a necklace thing that protects your piece of armor that protects your neck um i mean native americans had those so they made them out of shells and they um carved in them um ivory and pileated woodpeckers um into the gorgets and it's thought that those were actually associated with um chieftains or royalty um Hmm. in, uh, in native american tribes uh, ivory billed woodpeckers have been their uh, parts have been found as far as uh, Colorado, so they were traded pretty extensively. Um, and uh, an amulet, um, uh, this is kind of cool. An amulet with a woodpecker on it in warfare was um, thought to help uh, put a hole in the enemy. Oh yeah, you can think about <laughs> yeah. that because yeah, woodpeckers would peck yeah. holes in trees. So it's thought if you had a woodpecker, you could peck a hole in your enemy almost. <laughs> So, yeah, that's about all I have on the ivory builds. Um, uh, oh, I want to also remark, I talked about, uh, I mean, they've been talked about so much by so many famous people. Wilson, Audubon, uh, Thomas Jefferson, Theodore Roosevelt also visited. I think he visited the um, Singer Tract, but I don't know, I'll probably be corrected. Anyway, he visited an ancient cypress swamp. He talked about how, you know, it was primeval, and he saw three um, ivory-billed woodpeckers there and wrote about them. I don't think he shot and killed any. I hope not. Come on, TJ. He was a big game hunter. So yeah. Knows, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, they're just a mythical bird. They evoke a lot of, you know, I mean, any bur- bird or it's the holy grail. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, I really liked recording this. I, I hope to do one on the emperor woodpecker and maybe some other extinct species. And um, it's a really interesting uh, the subject. Dodo. Yeah. Yeah, awesome. the dodo. What was it? The um, moas. The moas. Yeah, the those are cool. Macaw. New Zealand. Yeah. 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 Spix macaw was recent. Yep. Since we've been alive. What, what does it say? What year 18 is? years. 18 years. Yeah. It's crazy. R.I.P. It's and awesome we'll, to hear all this, and let's just hope that they're still around. Timmy, do you want to end us with a little description from that that book you got in front of you? Or? Sure, sure, yeah. So the author of uh, I believe his last name was Pearson. I, I stated it earlier. I think that section's like written this. by Arthur Allen. But Arthur yeah, Allen, Pearson okay, contributes to that book. Um, by the way, the, listeners, we're reading from the Book of Birds, Volume Two, uh, from like nineteen. It's commissioned by National Geographic. Man, I'm right next to the mic, so the sound quality is good. 
This is a great book. Got lots of good stuff from a variety of ornithologists. And the ivory build is described as this magnificent bird is by far the largest of all our woodpeckers. The expanse of its wings measuring from 30 to 33 inches. It is today one of the very rarest birds on the continent and must be numbered among the birds classed as nearly extinct. Possibly the names of all living ornithologists who have ever seen one can be counted on the fingers of two hands. So even at the time this book was published, very rare bird. I uh, mean, almost a hundred years ago. Yeah, this book was published. Yeah, but they're they're persisting. We had a a sighting a few years back, and uh, maybe we'll all get to see one someday. All right. Well, thank you, you guys. <laughs> Thanks for having us, John. Always a pleasure. Yes, thank you for having me again. I appreciate you know, it. Keep coming back and yep. discussing aviary. Join us next time <laughs> for another exciting edition. You've been listening to the Dirty Bird Podcast, produced and researched by me, John Janusik, with music from Sidewalk Slammers. Listen to their song, New York Redneck, wherever you get your music. Original artwork by my lovely fiance, Lauren McClure. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review or comment. We love to hear from you. Follow us on Instagram at Dirty Bird Podcast and send us listener mail at dirtybirdpodcast at gmail.com. Until the next time, stay dirty, my birdies. <laughs>